Hey, it's Shane here. I just wanted to give you a heads up at the start of this episode that Alessandra and I talk about some mental health themes that might be triggering for some people. If that sounds like a bit much for you right now, this might be the episode to skip. Today on the podcast, we're having a chat about the DNA of performance. Can a line in an email get your heart rate rising? Do you find it a little bit harder to get started in the morning? Turns out that today's guest on the podcast, Alessandra Edwards, probably already knows just by looking at your DNA. Nope, DNA is not a leadership acronym, your literal DNA. Despite what you might think, Alessandra told me that true high performance isn't shouty and showy. It's deep and it's solid and it's steeped in self-restraint and self-leadership. Today, I give Alessandra a call to unpack exactly what high performance is through the lens of understanding our DNA. Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, liftoff! Alessandra Edwards is a mentor, trainer, and author on the DNA of performance, the science of how our genes can be unlocked for unstoppable vitality and resilience. She has more than 15 years experience working at the cutting edge of DNA-based performance and well-being programs for senior leaders, business owners, and their teams. Her client portfolio includes executives from ANZ, Coles, DXC Technology, NAB, and Shell. Alessandra is also the co-author of Brace for Impact and a contributing writer to What the Hell Do We Do Now, which became an Amazon number one bestseller in the business category early last year. Her third book, The DNA of Performance, How to Unlock Your Genes for Unstoppable Energy and Vitality, is due to be published in 2023. Alessandra is an incredibly clever person, and it's an absolute privilege to have her on phone calls with clever people. Alessandra, welcome. Super excited to be here, especially since it's taken us about 15 minutes to overcome my technical <laughs> inability to log on to the call. So it's all good. It's all, it's all great now. <laughs> I think after two years of everybody moving their work online, I don't think I've ever heard somebody jump off a podcast recording, a Zoom recording, uh, a Teams meeting and just say to themselves, you know what? That went amazing. There was not one technical hitch the entire time. So people can relate. That's what it's about. It's not about perfection. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, it's so great to have you. Hey, one of the things we always do is kick off the show is just ask three quick fast facts, which is where were you born? What was your very first job? And then what do you do now? Fantastic. So I was born in Rome, uh, Italy, um, a long time ago, although I moved, moved away, lived in many different countries. And um, the, the very first job I had was um, actually working in a pharmacy in England. So I was 15. And uh, I was spending the summer to perfect my English in England, which I absolutely loved. And I managed to get a part-time job in the perfume counter of, uh, of a pharmacy and I absolutely adored it. So I wonder in hindsight whether that sort of sparked an initial interest in all things medical and, and, and health. I was interested to see where, where, what, what kind of would come out of it. Now, you didn't tell me before we recorded, but you said, what kind of first job do you mean when you asked the, the question first job? And I was like, you can tell any. And you said, I've got some interesting ones. So uh, were there other ones that you were tossing up between sharing and not sharing? Well, so that, that was the first 
part-time job, but uh, the proper first high-paying job I had whilst I was still a student, and I was debating whether this is a, an appropriate thing to share or not. So I, I, I lived in Switzerland um, in my early 20s. I thought I wanted to become a, uh, an interpreter. I, I was brought up in an international uh, household, so I spoke <coughs> four languages by the time I was 21. And uh, so I went to a university in Switzerland and uh, apparently because of this unusual accent that you can hear, which is a little bit of a, of a mix, a melting pot of, uh, <coughs> of backgrounds and, and countries I lived in, I was asked to do voiceover for a, an audio only adult content. <laughs> Amazing hotline that was not live. So um, it was. Uh, this was early. This was before the internet, and it was a couple of uh, other students, Swiss students, who were clearly very high in the entrepreneurial spirit, and they had worked out that there was a very big expat community living uh, in Geneva, and so they just would give me these very light script. It was nothing, nothing hardcore, and but apparently um, my voice with this very unusual accent was a bit of a hit so they kept coming back and um and I put myself through uh very very expensive uh <laughs> years in Switzerland by doing that on the side and also ha having a great laugh sort of just not believing that people would listen to this stuff so <laughs> <laughs> now now in hindsight when you said to me I'm not sure what first job you would like me to share and you said I'm, I'm kind of deciding whether I, now that makes a lot more sense as to as to why now okay, <laughs> okay so the, the, it's worlds very worlds apart from what you're doing now what what do you do with yourself now but <laughs> <laughs> very different and actually I have to say that my husband has not he heard that story nor have my kids so we'll have to put a PG-13 <laughs> thing on this so um so now uh yes as you said million, million miles apart from that I work in a high performance uh space as a mentor and coach to senior leaders so I over the last 15 years I have really um if you like carved a little bit of a niche working with uh, senior executives, especially C-suite executives, helping them understand their DNA. And when I say DNA, I mean literally DNA. I know that's a word yeah. that's not in the leadership sphere, but um, we literally do genetic testing. And uh, um, so I walk this one-on-one -on -one journey, helping people understand who they really are at molecular level and how they can leverage then that knowledge to gain higher levels of success in their life. I have so many questions that come to my mind as soon as you start talking about DNA and not just like the acronym DNA, which means three leadership concepts or themes, but the the literal DNA, the makeup of who we are. Um, I have so many questions about that, um, but I want to come back and understand, I guess, a little bit of, of what, what got you into this space? What kind of was the thing that pointed you in this direction? You, you kind of mentioned that first pharmacy job that maybe piqued your interest in this medical space, but talk to me a bit about what pointed you into the work that you're doing now. You know, thinking in terms of my own DNA, I was not blessed with the best genetics. I uh, often joke with new clients when they're a little bit apprehensive when we first get the results of their genetic testing that I, to this day, have the worst <laughs> genetic report I've ever seen. So I was born with a congenital heart defect and I still have a very strong memory, age six, having my first episode of atrial fibrillation, which I didn't know what it was at the time. I just knew that 
I felt incredibly unwell and I had this impending sense that I was dying. And it was a very scary experience. To cut a long story short, that just turned out to be um, an actual anatomical defect that I have in my heart. And so um, throughout my childhood, I was, if you like, mollycoddled. I was always told I couldn't do sports. I was told that I would never be able to run and enjoy those kind of normal activities. And beyond that, uh, as I grew through my childhood, there were a number of circumstances that meant that ill health and early death became pretty much yearly companions uh, in my childhood. So many, many of my relatives died. Um, my dad was diagnosed with cancer when I was 11. He died when I was 12. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer a year later. Uh, a number of different things. And so I grew up with this limiting belief that my life would be short, that I would not be able to accomplish my highest desires and visions in terms of ambition, which um, ironically I was gifted with, a, a hunger for success. And so what happened was that um, when I came to university and uh, a number of health scenes started to occur for me, including really significant mental health uh, issues, which actually led to an attempted suicide um, when I was 23, what happened is that a number of people started to speak to me about non-medical practices that might help me gain a high level of well-being. And having been brought up in a very um, scientific, very black and white household, I, uh, I, I look back with compassion on myself back then as to how dismissive I was of anyone recommending yoga or herbs or meditation. And classic tale, I ended up being dragged kicking and screaming to a, a yoga class once. And, and that was it. That was the first seed that was planted and became a lifelong affair with an exploration of self and exploration of any practice, whether it's evidence-based or not, that might A, give us more of an insight into who we are and why we are on this planet, an insight into what our Achilles heels are and how we can then truly embrace those, love them, and at the same time, not accept them as limitations, and also giving us really successful strategies to then live what I like to call an unstoppable life. So a life full of joy, full of passion, full of love, full of money, success, um, giving, everything. You know, a full, full life, life with a capital L. I love that life with a capital L. I feel like it's a really great way of framing it. Um, one of the things, I mean, I just hear that story. I, I, I didn't even personally know that story and and it's it's quite profound to see that the journey that you went on um, and where you kind of landed that and what you're doing now. One of the things that stands out to me in that is that you could have gone in two different directions about the kind of people that you help. And you could have gone down the path that helps more people, I guess, in a similar situation with, to you, which is people who look at themselves and go, I want to, you know, just in general, live life longer and more fulfilled. But you went to a very specific group of people who are people who are really high performing executive leaders, and you went really narrow on that specific group of people. What made you decide to work with executives? I didn't always work with executives. So I started in a clinical setting and um, and initially I was particularly interested less in a specific category of people and more in a specific category of 
symptoms and challenges. So because of my personal experience, I specialized for a number of years helping people who had drug-resistant psychosis and depressions and all sorts of uh, mental health challenges and were cast aside by the medical profession, not because they didn't want to, but because they had exhausted the level of tools they could help them with. So that's where I cut my teeth into. Now, it, it just so happens that I have married um, the love of my life, who also has been a CEO for many, many, many years. And my job on the side outside of clinical hours was really helping my husband, um, particularly through the initial years of uh, launching startups and then making them successful and selling them in maintaining good quality sleep, good levels of energy and, you know, working 78 hour weeks and not, not collapsing. And so he saw firsthand the effects and results that could be achieved. And for a very long time, he just kept telling me like, stop working with these people, come and work with my colleagues. We really need your help. And, um, uh, and, and so it was just one of those things, if you like, in a way he, he wore me down. And secondly, also that side of me that was, um, always in awe of, uh, people who stretch themselves, regardless of what industry or what job they might be doing. Uh, there is something in me that really recognizes that potential for human greatness. And really, someone doesn't have to have the CEO title in front. So, but those tales of, you know, rags to riches or from illness to, you know, Olympic medals, all those kinds of things. So he introduced me to some of his colleagues and, you know, the rest was history. And, and I just found that um, it was actually profoundly humbling working with uh, um, <clears throat> with those people to begin with, and it still is, because the difference between working with people who are chronically ill and uh, whose lives revolves around their symptoms, um, their illness becomes their identity. Mm. And there are many, many CEOs that I've worked with and I continue to work with who have the same disease states and symptoms. However, they found a greater purpose outside of self. And so they are able to continue working perhaps a half mast, right? And so the challenge is like, how do we get you to do what you're doing, but feeling awesome mm. and are, are still able to get up in the morning, even though they are depressed and no one knows about this or, uh, you know, having really reduced vitality or, or, you know, having diabetes and they don't even know that or, you know, having their brain not working properly, but they're just so fired and so motivated by this vision they have to lead people, lead an organization that um, they just keep going. And I, I just find that incredibly inspiring. And so they're the people that I, I now choose to really support and put myself on the line to, to give everything to. Mm. I, I'm interested to understand my kind of perspective, having spoken with leaders, been a leader myself, is that especially for people who are in really senior positions of leadership, they spend a lot of time being in service to other people. Mm. And then when it comes time to really take care of themselves, they get put to the side whilst trying to be at their best for other people. Um, is that kind of a pretty common experience that you see with, with the leaders that you work with? It's extremely, extremely common. Mm. I would say 
is the number one impediment to many of these leaders living this unstoppable life that I was talking about. Mm. And so on the surface, there is this perception of, yes, high performance, perception of a charmed life and the great job and the white picket fence, but often they're profoundly disconnected without being aware of this. And so often, if you like, they come to me for a quick fix. You know, everybody's interested in the 1% shifts of give me the high-performance supplements or tell me all the genetic hacks and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But actually, the 99% of the work happens in helping people really slowing down and um, taking a breath and really taking stock. And Allowing, I know there's a lot of talk around, you know, uh, vulnerability and authenticity in leadership circles these days, but I think before even talking about that, the work that needs to be done is for leaders to actually start accepting the real vulnerability. So a lot of the work and the conversations we have are around, well, these are your genetics, you know, and you actually have genetics that give you really high predisposition towards burnout or early onset dementia. And, and here you are doing absolutely everything for everybody else. And these things are actually, you know, conspiring to, you know, to really to, to slow you down and, and um, making you feel really unwell and getting to the point where you're in your 50s and you're finally starting to get scared about what the future holds. So it is about creating a safe space where someone can go, okay, well, these are, th- this is who I am. This is my DNA. And these are limitations, but in a way, they're actually the opportunities to help me then live an unstoppable life. Because what happens is then if you do create that space and connection for yourself, is that you end up with truly having it all. So -hmm. you can be the CEO that is blazing ahead in in innovation, in modeling um, the, the, the best type of leadership um, who is also self-accepting, who also has time for partnerships, who also, you know, has time even for intimacy. Many of the clients I work with no longer have that. Those are not balanced lives. Mm. And unfortunately, we live in a world where everything is glossy and glamorous and we are surrounded by, uh, you know, thousands of influencers. And we, we all do this, right? As, as thought leaders, self-promotion is, is part of it. You know, we need to make our brands known. But there is a real danger and it's so insidious. And it happens for everybody, even the smartest among us, to start creating self-worth and intrinsic values based on other people's values, how other people view us. And it's it's really dangerous. And I think it's particularly dangerous for leaders who are then responsible for hundreds, thousands of, of people. Mm. It's significant, especially people who are, um, I mean, whether you're leading a team of two people or whether you're leading a team of, you know, that includes yeah. thousands of people, both you have the responsibility of being in service to other people and, and looking after the people that have been, I guess, entrusted to you. One of the things that I was listening to as you were kind of unpacking that there was this kind of unstoppable life that you're talking about and this kind of high performance language. When I immediately hear high performance, the pictures that come to mind for me were very different to the pictures that you just described then. Because in my mind, high performance looks like you don't stop, you don't slow down, you kind of keep pushing on ahead, you ignore some of the signs that are going on. You might operate at 80%, but 80% with your foot on the accelerator is better than slowing down. 
but that's not the kind of high, picture of high performance that you're giving here. What What is your kind of picture of high performance? So I everything you have described is the way we have been led to believe that high performance is. And um, and I agree. And it is, it is very attractive, isn't it? Like mm. there is this notion of um, energy and power. And um, I mean, just look at, um, you know, the, the David Goggins of this world, right? Go, go, go. No yeah. pain, no gain. Uh, you're a wuss. You're a wimp unless you give me another 100 push-ups. I um, I'm now 49 years old, and that used to be very much the kind of discourse that I would embrace for myself. And what I have found as I near sort of the, you know, my 50s is that actually that is not true high performance. And I say this because after 15 years of working with some of the highest performers in big names in big companies, is that when we have the conversations, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they are exhausted. You know, they have no intimacy with their partners. They do not show up at their kids, you know, drama um, performance at school. They, they're they not present. So they are living in a shell. And for me, high performance is something that is less showy mm. and is deeper and more solid. And it really is dependent upon attaining almost this dichotomous nature of a highest level of self-knowledge. Self By this, I mean, you know, when we do the genetics and we understand, okay, well, I've, I've, I don't have the genetics to be an Olympian. I don't have the genetics to work 70-hour weeks. And so at the same time, embracing a highest level of self-acceptance. So on one side, we have high levels of self self-esteem and confidence, but also the highest level of self-forgiveness. And so on one side, we see the limitless self-love i i love all of me as i am but at the same time the highest level of self-intolerance because what i see in many of leaders i work with is actually a high degree of tolerance and when i say this what i mean is that there is high degree of tolerance for the aspect of us that's super ambitious and wants to keep working high degree of tolerance for um, you know, the part of me that just it thinks it's okay to come down with two or three glasses of wine every night, right? Because I haven't chosen to actually have a few breaks throughout the day. So it's, it's almost this uh, opposition, if you like, that creates the whole. So on one side, there's the knowledge of warts and all. There is the love that comes with, but also there is the embracing of self-restraint, the embracing of discipline. That's really, really hard. And that that is high performance. And particularly when we're able to manage this in a way that is balanced, that does not lead to obsession or compulsion, whereby, you know, I have to absolutely run for an hour every day. If I don't do this, then, you know, the self-beating comes or, you know, as I was saying, the self-goggings of this world, you know, that then what, what that does, I think it just enables people to justify carrying on living with pain yeah if you're going through your life constantly self-beating and not being happy with who you are because you can't kill yourself doing 150 push-ups i would argue there is something there that needs to be explored
Yeah, because if your identity is so intrinsically linked with the amount of hours we work, you work with the push-ups that you do, with you know how lean you are, all of those things, then that that is not high performance. That's that's imbalance. Mm, I, I one of the things that um. I always kind of am seeing more and more often is, is people who have created a picture of what that high performance looks like and they consistently try to realign their life to look like that high performance. And in the process of that, they end up suffering themselves and they just believe that the pain or whatever it is that their experience is the the thing that you just have to endure in order to be able to attain the goal. Now I use this as an example. We, we um, you know, I've been married for 14 years and, and, we would, you know, we always joke around with my wife and, sh- and she'll say, these shoes are killing me. I was like, why don't you just wear more, more comfortable shoes? And she'll say, it's the price you pay for looking good. And <laughs> I, I just think, okay, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, she, it's just kind of the pain that you carry in order to be able to achieve the outcome. And I, I feel like high performance has this kind of association that it needs pain in order to be able to be true high performance. But what you're saying and what I'm hearing is that actually the the best kind of high performance is not the one that carries a burden and pain with it. It's an intolerance to um, potentially what is a, uh, you know, you're having to just carry the pain that you don't need to carry things that you could deal with and address. So um, dealing with the things that you can actually manage. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? It is, 100%. You've described it really, really well. Now, it doesn't mean that there is no effort mm. involved. And often the, um, the, the level of intolerance that we need to develop is towards a lack of effort mm. if that is the right thing for you. Yeah. So, for example, at genetic level, you know, I now understand why I um, was suicidal in my 20s. So there were all these external factors, you know, I'd lost my father. I, I, you know, I didn't have the support that I needed as a teenager to really understand my emotions. So there was all this what we call epigenetic. So this coaxing from the environment to speak to our genes, to express themselves. So there is all of that. But I now understand that my blueprint is to tend towards very low levels of brain energy and neurochemicals. And so for me, there will always be the tendency to want to embrace doing less rather than doing more. Mm. So for me, the effort needs to come in to like, no, let's be disciplined, get up in the morning because actually staying in bed is a lot easier for me. But many of the leaders I work with have the exact opposite genetics. So they, they are at the opposite spectrum. So they have incredibly overactive brains their prefrontal cortex never shuts off and so if their their life and their calendar is a classic 2022 calendar where there is you know one meeting after another and perhaps they've even fallen into the position of a c-suite leader right like it often happens middle management just stepping up there is no training Mm. many of the ceos i work with are some of the loneliest people professionally speaking that i know They have no one to turn to. Mm. It is very, very difficult. So for them where they can't shut off the brain, for them the effort and the muscle building has to be precisely where that space is. So for you actually is to stay in bed an extra 10 minutes in the morning and foregoing the going to the gym in the morning and foregoing saying yes to, you know, the umpteenth networking circle. So it is very individualized. There isn't really a a cookie cutter method for Mm. anything 
I think whether it's well-being, performance, or even for life, there is no, there is no manual. All there is, I think, is an ongoing desire to deepen our understanding of who we are and through my lens, which I'm not saying is the only lens, but is the lens that has served me and my clients, is that biological and genetic understanding as well as then a psychological understanding because you can't separate the two. You know, we're not just we're not just cells and biology. We now know that thoughts actually switch on genes, for example. Emotions switch on genes. Emotions can turn on biological processes. So the only thing that I believe to hold true for everybody is that the recognition it is a journey and we can embrace aging and wisdom and continue to discover more about ourselves, about our our limits and how we can push those, but through love and understanding and and, and acceptance. I'm glad you touched on the um, what you said is this kind of genetic blueprint um, because I, I, I'm so fascinated by the DNA part of your work. And you, you made a comment just before where you said, um, you know, I don't have the genetics to be you know, Olympian, an Olympian athlete or to be this. And now I'm, I'm secretly hoping that somewhere inside my genetic blueprint (laughs) is the potential to be someone who's deeply coordinated at sport. I'm still yet to see it in my life. Now, (laughs) do you want to unpack the DNA genetic blueprint? Like, cause that's for a lot of people will be for the first time they're ever hearing this kind of concept. Of course. So first of all, of all, the work that I do really concerns itself with, um, genes that, are called non-penetrating. So what that means is that I'm not interested in going and, you know, rummaging through someone's DNA and find out whether they have, you know, like the Angelina Jolie breast cancer gene, you know, those really sort of um, quite deterministic genes. Because at the end of the day, there's not an awful lot that we can do about some of those things, okay? So I, I choose to work in an empowering environment so the genes that we look at are more concerned with, okay, what traits of resilience might you have? Just looking purely at biochemical level, okay? Um, are you someone who at genetic level throws a very quick response to psychosocial stress? So, for example, we look at specific genetic mutations whereby without knowing you, I can tell you that a one liner in an email will actually get your heart rate going, your blood pressure going. From, okay? from someone's genetics, you can you can someone's genetics. That. Yes, absolutely. Now, of course, if this person were also brought up in an environment that was traumatic, you know, abusive, uh, they didn't have access to education, care, love. I mean, regardless of their genetics, you know, they they sympathetic nervous system will be overactivated okay so it isn't all genetics the, the environment plays a huge part of it however we can definitely see these traits yeah so for people who've not had really significant events uh, in their childhood so we can have a look at that we can have a look at genetics that impact someone's ability to have really good memory short memory especially as they age we can look at someone's um, rate of aging, for example. So now we do specific testing where we look at specifically inside the cells to see whether they truly are, you know, 51 or whether they're already 62, 
and how that translates. We can basically look at also levels of neurochemicals in the brain. Do you tend towards low motivation biochemically? And so how do we, you know, we, we do this, we run this workshop called Designer DNA Day where we look at personalized strategies, strategies for high performance based on an individual's uh, DNA. So instead of reading, you know, the Forbes blogs about, okay, seven habits of high performing leaders and telling you that everyone has to get up at five o'clock in the morning, let's actually look at genetically where your circadian rhythm is at. When is the best time for you to eat? You know, should you eat protein in the morning or should you actually skip protein altogether? Because that will actually increase, you know, boost up your dopamine levels. Mm. Um, you know, should you, the fact that you experience high energy in the evenings, is that to do with your genetics? Because a circadian level, you are a rock star type, or is it to do with the fact that you have retrained your whole physiology to stay up late? So now you say, I feel great in the evenings, but then when we actually do testing, we see your cortisol is through the roof at midnight. Yeah. And so then you're waking up multiple times during the night because your blood sugar level goes all over the place. So that is not part of your genetic blueprint. That is something that you've created and is not actually serving you. So there's, there's, you know, there's about 30 different metrics that I, we look at. So that so fascinating to the me. strategy becomes then really distilled, you know, a little bit of a difference between, I grew up with my, my mother was French. She was a beautiful woman, extremely glamorous. Um, if, if she were alive, I would so love to coach her and help her along the journey of self-love and self-acceptance because I think she didn't have that as a child. You know, she grew up in the resistance in France and she saw really, you know, terrible things under Nazi-occupied uh, France. But she she had this thing about perfume, right? The difference between a perfume and eau de toilette. So perfume is the essence. All the toilette is where everything is diluted. A lot of the articles that I read, like on LinkedIn or you know, even podcasts I hear, it's it's like a 15 to 20 uh, point list of things that leaders need to do. And it's like I, I live and breathe high performance. I couldn't even fit all of those things in. No one has the time. I mean, this is this is why I think some of these prescriptions end up being so hard, so difficult to follow, and then people give up. With this approach, what happens is that you end up with the perfume, you know, the, the distilled essence, so that you might find that for you, once we have got you into an optimal biological state, you might just need to do two or three things every day to really wow. keep you in that high-performing state. Now, initially, there is a level of what I call DNA recovery, so, you know, if someone, for example, if we find that you are in that pre-diabetic range and you're not aware of it, you're waking up multiple times at night or you're putting weight on around the, belly, around the belly and you think it's just age, those are all very significant metabolic processes that then translate into reduced performance. And what I mean by this in terms of performance, I mean reduced focus, reduced output, reduced energy. For men, um, you know, uh, reduced ability to, to have um, sexual performance. For women, reduced ability to uh, enjoy a sexual life. That it really is, you know, all, uh, all encompassing. So um, I just find that it simplifies 
you know, it simplifies things. So once you're optimized, there really there's not that many things that you need to do. Oh, I feel like in, in some ways it's a, it, it, it's equal parts relief and curiosity for me, the relief of yeah. going, okay, so there, there is some sense of the things that were coming that felt like they were difficult and challenging. Maybe there is an underlying reason as to why some things felt more difficult than other things to achieve. And also curiosity, which is like, I want to, I want to dig a whole lot deeper into my own kind of blueprint. Of course. <laughs> and isn't it, isn't it amazing that, that we have that? Mm. Um, I, I don't know if you have, we have time, but I just wanted to share just an example that both yeah. personal and I see in many of my leaders. Uh, and this is something that becomes more significant with age, because I don't know if our listener, if your listeners know this, but, um, whilst we can't change our genetics, you know, we can change the expression of, of our genes. So certain genes can really respond to dietary changes or lifestyle changes, right? And, and so you can really optimize a lot. But genetics also become more insistent as we age. So I use the metaphor of being born with the massive baggy pair of genes, right? Mm. And they're your genes, okay? No one's going to change those, but you're just going to grow into them. Mm. So some of the things that, you know, you might discover when you do this kind of testing is that, hey, that is so true. You know, I never used to feel tired in the afternoons. And now as soon as I have lunch, like I get that massive brain fog, okay? So, and maybe we might find that, you have a number of genetics around blood sugar regulation, for example. So you're growing into those genes. So that's why, you know, in your mid-40s, just about everybody has that, you know, pin drop moment of despair and fright when you go, oh my goodness, I'm turning into my mom or my dad, right? <laughs> that's the reason is because of genetics. But anyway, I digress. So what I see a lot is a genetic mutation related to mental health in winter. Okay. Not everybody says this. So, you know, everybody says, oh, your metabolism slows down in winter. Actually, it's not true for everybody. But some people really have a significant mutation in, in a gene related to serotonin metabolism. And it is seasonal. So I found this extremely empowering when I found this. Because what I found is that as I aged, winter would always be a more depressive state for me. And the same for many of my clients. So understanding that means that now we take preemptive action. So starting for, for these clients and for myself, starting beginning of June or as soon as the weather starts to turn, there are certain things that we do to prevent a complete bottoming, bottoming out of serotonin wow. so that then they don't have to suffer mm. during winter. They don't have to feel depressed. They don't have to, you know, retreat and, and, and then utilize other strategies because that's what we do. We just self-medicate, right? Whether it's alcohol or sugar or carbohydrates or gaming, whatever it is, we all do it. So that they have more resourceful strategies that then don't rob them of their self-esteem because they don't like that they're drinking too much. Mm. So it's, it's, I just really love it. It's just given me, it's given me so much, so much hope, so much joy, so much vitality, and also so much empowerment. Mm. As, as an individual to be able to say, well, these are the things that I, I can do and I can completely know and understand and love and accept my operating system. So I know when I need to reboot, I know when I need to run my antiviral software, you know, I know the, the, the little things that I can do to keep everything in a, you know, tickety-boo. Mm. singing along fashion that, that is so 
profound for and, and again we're talking to everybody not just those c-suite executives That'd anyone who wants to live this limitless unlimited potential that it's kind of exists within people the, the the picture that popped into my mind as you were kind of unpacking this genetic blueprint is that is that actual kind of like floor plan or a blueprint of a house that you're building? And you talked about like the 20 things that people put out there. I felt like it's like someone put up the, the blueprint for a mansion and you're trying to build this mansion, but your genetic blueprint is one for a cottage out in the acreage. And it's like, I don't have all the resources that are actually going to be required in order to be able to build that. And so as a result, of, I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm not a high performer. I feel like, you know, all the things that I want to do, I can't do. What you've done is kind of brought in this really nice um, kind of almost just a sense of relief to go, actually, you have something which is unique for you and your genetic makeup of that pattern that if you work to it, you can create something that you love and enjoy and you can be at your best. Is that kind of what I'm hearing in this yeah, conversation? So true. Um, you've got such an incredible ability to summarize things in a very elegant way. Um, I really love what you said. I love the metaphor of of the cottage mm. and you know what when you find out that you have a cottage then you can have the prettiest cottage that mm. ever was and you can actually build an extension right yeah. once you have that solid basis rather than try and be who you are not mm. and if you truly desire to walk this life of authenticity, which I, I honestly, you know, the more we go on and the more I see social media and um, even TV programs and, and the way things are evolving, right, more and more I am convinced that the only way to have a happy life is to have a life that is true to ourselves, yeah, yeah? to just put our head down and not just become a social media souvenir that has been, you know, enhanced to an inch of its life because there is a hidden cost, you know, doing that. When you truly have acceptance and self-love and you have the mastery to be the best possible, possible cottage that you mm -hmm. can be, that is, that is so inspiring. I think that that is what human potential really is about wow. and that is how you go about living a life that is also gracious and impactful and successful and full as you age because you can actually continue to do this into your 80s and 90s and unfortunately one of the things that we never talk about in our society is aging mm -hmm. you know as as an actual challenge and I don't mean aging as in just Botox and the skin deep aspect but the thing is we were gifted with this incredible body that is not a machine, you know, it's an incredibly sophisticated and complex organism that on average has the ability to give us 95 years mm. of lifespan. Unfortunately, with it though, come processes of, of aging, otherwise we just wouldn't die. We will continue to go on. And so, you know, by the time we reach our 40s, we're not aware of things that are afoot, that are already in motion that are going to speed up bigger and bigger challenges as we age. Mm. So this was not something that I was really interested in, you know, while I was still in my 30s. But now that I'm nearly 50s, 50 and, and we've had significant health challenges in our family with some of our seniors and we're seeing what, what can happen, um, 
I, I'm really sitting up and doing a lot of research on this and understanding that, you know, you're, it's, never too, it's never too early to start living according to your genetics to then prevent a, a, a speeding up of the aging processes. So if you, if you want to be in the state of high performance, and by this I mean having it all, you know, the relationship, the, the happiness, the success, the leadership, the travel, you know, all the amazing things that life can offer, and you want to continue doing this for decades to come, you need to start to prepare in terms of what failure could actually be, because mm -hmm. we don't really talk about the potential failure of aging, and it's something that's very distressing when, when it happens. So there are things that you can do right now that mean that you can be the way you are well into your 80s and 90s and not become a statistic of, I think it's an average of 9.6 years of disability at the end of our life. Mm. And so we tend to think in terms of, I will take care of that when I'm in my 70s, when I'm old. It's too, it's too late by then. It's too late. You can't reverse some of, those, some of that damage. I'm aware that I've gone off on a complete tangent, and this happens a lot to me when I'm enjoying a conversation. So I'll... I'll I, I, again, like most things you think about people go, well, I'll worry about my superannuation when I'm later in life. And yeah. then by then you've missed this incredible opportunity to get things right before you get there. And I, I think that's, you know, my, my encouragement to people who are listening to this podcast is, um, you know, I, I, I have, love this great phrase Gallup used this quite often. It's that you, you can't become somebody that you're not, but you can be more of who you already are. Mm -hmm. And, and you kind of, you talked about the cottage extension, which I think is just a really nice co conversation to go like, discover who you are, invest in that, learn more about that, learn how you could extend that and enhance that rather than getting so caught up in everything else. And I think that's a really great place to start. Now mm -hmm. I would point people to you naturally to go like, reach out, find out how you can learn more about your own genetic blueprint. That's probably like maybe two or three steps for people ahead of where they already are. Like if you were to give someone one really practical, simple next step, uh, what would be the, the most accessible next step for someone listening to kind of start this journey? Um, well, I, I personally, I would say really starting with the, with the genetics. Yeah. Um, and not under the banner of self-promotion, but because I think it's a lot easier to do it that way than mm. starting somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, just so that then you have this summary blueprint. And I, because I'm aware that not everyone is a CEO, and but everyone should really have access to um, this kind of knowledge. I now run group programs. So they just go for Amazing. six weeks. They're group coaching programs. You don't have to be a C-suite executive. You can be a mom at home um, if you're interested in just being the best possible self um, that you can be. So we, we run a six-week program. We do the genetic testing and I actually teach people how to read their genetics and um, so we look at the foundation of what is the optimal nutrition for your genetics what is your uh, stress signature what is your energy signature and so that's a really good way to um, to start that's also affordable and is a it's a shorter period of time rather than you know the one-on-one -on -one work I do with leaders it's amazing. And I'll put details for that um, for people to be able to connect with you to learn a bit more about that coaching program. And again, I'm sure there's other kind of executive leaders that are listening to this right now going, 
okay, you've just unlocked a whole bunch of thinking for me. Now I just need to kind of reach out. What's, what are the best ways for people to connect with you? So um, the, the best way, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. So um, just find, finding me on, on LinkedIn, so Alessandra Edwards and um, through my website. So there is a contact form, alessandraedwards.com. And uh, our email is also a, a great way to reach me, which is alessandra at alessandraedwards.com. Amazing. And I'll put all the links to that in all the show notes for the podcast so people can reach out and connect with you. Alessandra, I feel like we just scratched the surface of so much that we could have talked about. And I feel like I could talk about this all day with you, Um, but I'm also mindful of people's time. And it's just been such a privilege to have you on the show. So thank you so much for joining me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really thoroughly, genuinely enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for asking such fantastic questions. Thank you. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.